dear friends in Christ. Saw a comic recently of a pastor in the pulpit preaching, and the caption below said, What should Pastor Jones do? Right in the middle of point two, he realizes that point three is totally irrelevant. Sometimes I feel that way, that certain things are more relevant than other things when it comes to the proclamation of God's word. But when it comes to Jesus' words, it is all relevant. And we see that particularly in our gospel text today because we're at the third point. There are four main points we're trying to emphasize in this Sermon on the Mount that we've been dealing with now during February. We've, we've talked about the Beatitudes, and, and, and now we're getting into some of the practical heart of his gospel message as the crowds gathered in front of him. Both his followers as well as the religious leaders who were kind of questioning what he had to say. But today, as I said, he gets practical. And he tries to answer the question of, if this is true, Jesus, everything you're saying, how do we live out our Christian life in this kingdom that you are talking about? And so he summarizes in these, these words that Pastor Kurt read for us this morning, his ethical teachings for his followers. And then he contrasts these teachings with the traditional teachings of the Jewish religious leaders. But I think before we can examine this text, we need to go to the end of the sermon. Just like sometimes we need to go to the end of the book to understand what we're reading in the middle of the book. If we go to the end of the, the sermon in chapter 7, we read these words. And when Jesus was finished with these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You know, it's hard for us, 2,000 years later, to understand the difficulty and the shocking effect Jesus had upon the crowd. The difficulty of understanding that here was someone who could say things in his own words and supersede the words of the scribes and the Pharisees. To the Jews, the law was absolutely holy. It was absolutely divine. But we find in our text no less than five times, Jesus quotes the law only then to contradict it and to substitute a teaching of his own. He claimed the right to point out the inadequacies of the most sacred writings in the world and to correct them out of his own wisdom. Clearly, one of two things must be true. Either Jesus was mad, or he was the Son of God, and the Son of God can do that, you see. No ordinary person would dare to claim to overturn that which up until this point was regarded as the eternal Word of God. But Jesus did it, and he could do it because of who he was. You know, when a person seeks to have control, in any given situation, either that person is seen as having authority or he doesn't have authority. There's no in-between. I remember years ago when one of our boys were uh, in a music contest as part of the Rolling Story uh, band. And after the band had played, the judge stood up and he went over to the band 
And he said, you did a great job, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to play that song again. And he looked over at the trumpet section and he said, I want you to play with more emotion. And he looked over at the saxophones and he said, I want you to be quieter. And then the band played it again. That judge was in control. There was no question about it. He was listened to. And they did a better job the second time around. Well, Jesus took the wisdom of men and corrected it because he was in control. He was who he said he was, the Holy Son of God. Four different times he said, You have heard it said, but now I tell you. You see, he was superseding what had been the teaching before. William Barclay, the great theologian, once wrote, No one can honestly listen to Jesus without feeling that this is God's last word, besides which all other words are inadequate and all other wisdom is just out of date. That's the kind of authority, that's the kind of control Jesus had when he spoke. And so as we look at this new law of Christ's kingdom, we are doing so knowing who proclaimed it. These weren't the new thoughts of some confused rabbi 2,000 years ago. These were the words of God himself. You know, when God sent his son to earth, he drew a line across history and said, I'm giving you a new law of my kingdom that will not replace, but will fulfill the law I gave to my people at Mount Sinai. Now, The old law was inscribed on stone tablets. Where is the new law inscribed? It's inscribed in our hearts, isn't it? That's what we've been talking about today. Change my heart, O God. Because the law is inscribed right here in our hearts. Now when we hear that, that, that Christ has done away with the old, we say, first of all, oh, maybe finally I don't have to deal with the thou shalt nots anymore in my life. We are liberated, we think, from all the laws that the Jewish people, especially the religious authorities, tried so hard and diligently to obey. But then we hear the words of Jesus in our text. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is that about? How can it be? Not one point of the law has been removed or lessened. In fact, it's been made more stringent, more more severe. The Old Testament law said, you're okay if you don't murder somebody. What did Jesus say? He says, you're guilty of murder, even if you are angry at your brother. The Old Testament law said you were okay if you didn't commit adultery. But now, what did Jesus say? You're guilty if you simply look at a woman lustfully. Has Jesus cast us into utter utter hopelessness? Can we all fulfill the law in such a perfect way? Instead of lessening the demand of the law, it seems like he's increased it. Well, actually, what Jesus did 
was that he took several of these, in, in our text, several of these important Old Testament laws and interpreted them, you see, for his people in the light of the new life that he was to give. He made a fundamental change without altering God's standards. He dealt with the attitudes and intentions, you see, of the heart, not simply some external action. What goes on inside, you see, is the starting point of the external action, and God knows that. You see, the Pharisees said that righteousness consisted of performing certain actions or not doing evil actions. But Jesus said it, it all centers, it all centers in the attitude of the heart. The point is that God sees deeper than we do. He sees those thoughts in our hearts that can, can lead them to the actions. Now we say to ourselves, well, we really can't help the evil things that spring into our minds all of a sudden. We try to defend ourselves against it seems like this accusing and judging God. The demand of the, of the law is so great, we think, we'll never be able to get out from under its load. Now, this is the predicament that Luther found himself in hundreds of years ago, facing an angry judge who demanded perfection in every way, realizing his sins he tried through fasting, through continuous prayer, even through physical torture to make amends for his sins. But he received no peace. Nothing he did could release him from the guilt that he carried around with him. But then we remember what Luther did and what happened through the study of Scripture. He found the answer to his problem, and I hope you have found that answer today as well. Instead of seeing God as an angry judge who's watching us every day, every minute to see what we're doing wrong, he started to see Jesus as his defender. He, re he viewed him then as his defense attorney. So when we in our own heart know we have sinned, and have fallen short of the demands of the law. Jesus comes and makes sure that those sins do not separate us from him. He says, nothing can separate my love from you. As Ephesians 2 says, we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift from God. So Jesus looks deeper into our hearts. He starts with the attitudes of our hearts. He knows that anger is murder in the heart. He knows that, a, that lust is adultery in the heart. And so first we have to deal with what's going on inside and make sure that we are forgiven because we know it can turn into an external action. So what God does then is to take us into protective custody against our own destructive feelings of guilt and worthlessness. And, and he sets us down before the cross and he says, look up at that cross. Do you remember what I did for you on that cross? It's by grace you are saved. You are freed 
from your sins. You do not have to live with that guilt anymore in your heart. Yes, there still will be consequences of our sins. Yes, there's still the demands of the law to remind us that we need a defender. But when the devil wakes us up, as maybe he has done for you as he's done for me, and my mind goes to something I've done wrong, and I start feeling guilty all over again, even though I've asked for forgiveness, what do we do? Do we lay there for hours feeling that guilt? No. God says, when that happens, what I want you to do is to cry out to Satan, be gone. You're going to have to take up all these things that you're forcing me to think about with my defender. For you see, I am in his care. I'm in his custody. And he's taken care of all the guilt in my heart. You see, we have no power to battle Satan with his accusations. Satan says, how can you call yourself a Christian and you've had those kind of thoughts? At those times, we realize that we can't come against those guilty feelings on our own. We have to leave those feelings in God's hands And as we do, he says, the load of guilt will be lessened. Two things. In those times, Christ will give us power through his spirit to resist the evil that we are tempted to do. And secondly, he reaches down and forgives us when we do fail him, when we do give in to our temptations. Christ did it. He reached down to the depths of our helplessness and despair and said, look, I have bought you with a great price. The demands of the law are great, but you are freed from the main consequence of your sin, that is, death itself. And so then, what's our reaction? Out of thankfulness to God, we seek to live our life in a way that brings honor and glory to God because of what he's done for us. We don't live our life just looking up and wondering if he's watching us when we do that thing wrong or that thing wrong. No, we look up and his eyes are filled with tears on the cross as he forgives us for our sins. And those things are washed away. And we can live with joy and thankfulness for the kind of life that he's given us to live. You know, there are many new laws that dramatically affect our lives each and every day. Every time we get into the car, we buckle up with our seatbelts because it's the law. And when we're tempted to text while we're driving, we don't because we know it's the law that we're not to text while we're driving. And now everyone's to get uh, health insurance because it's the law. Some laws have more of a dramatic effect on us than other things do. But you see, the new law that Christ gave 2,000 years ago the new law of his kingdom had, had, has the most dramatic effect on our lives. For he gives us a new way to cope with life because of this new law. For through it, we can be lifted up from the crushing load of guilt that sometimes we experience and be given the power to deal with our sins through his forgiveness. 
I love those words of that song. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. When we're crushed by our sins and we feel so bad for what we've done and Satan is accusing us, what can we do? We can give those guilt feelings to Jesus. And he lessens the load. May we see the Christian life not as a burden or an impossible task, but as a a joy-filled experience with Christ as our great encourager, our great helper, and our great defender. Let's pray. Oh Lord, all of us here know what it's like to feel the burden of guilt and to feel the, the load of sin. And sometimes we don't think we're worthy to receive your love and forgiveness. But that's why you came to earth. And we thank you that you come again and again to remind us that you are our friend and our Savior and our Lord. And you've come to wash away all those things that we feel so guilty about. Thank you that you are our defender. That you come against Satan who wants to accuse us. And you lessen the load of that guilt and remind us that you are there at all times for us so that we can live our life with that new freedom, that new law of the kingdom that you came to give. Thank you for that freedom, Lord, and what you will do in all our lives, even in these days ahead, because of your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.